Welcome back to the Fit for Golf podcast. In this episode, I am joined by world-renowned golf coach, Derek Ingram. Derek has been a high-performance golf coach for over 20 years. He is currently the head coach for Golf Canada's National Men's Amateur and Young Pro teams and coaches players on the PGA, Corn Ferry, European, Canadian and Latino American tours. He has also coached many of Canada's top junior, amateur and professional players. In the past five years, Derek's students have won two times on the PGA Tour, once on the Corn Ferry Tour and several times on the Canadian Tour. Twice Derek's players have qualified for the FedEx Cup Tour Championship, which is reserved for the top 30 players from a PGA Tour season. In addition, Derek himself has also won 20 professional golf tournaments. Just before we get started, a quick reminder that Fit for Golf has its own app. It is currently being used by nearly 4,000 golfers around the world, ranging all the way from PGA Tour winners to high handicap beginners to juniors and seniors. There are programs to suit everyone and the detailed video instruction makes it very simple to follow. You can get 20% off a one-year subscription by entering the code FFGPOD. You will not find it on the App Store. You must go to the website to sign up. Now to Derek Ingram. Derek Ingram, thank you very much for joining me on the Fit for Golf podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Mike. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing really well. No, thank you. Derek, would you mind just introducing yourself to the listeners and letting them know a little bit about your background and what exactly you're doing in the golfing world? Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, I coach golf. I've been a full-time coach for about 25 years now. I kind of specialized at, at a time when very few people were, uh, were doing that. Uh, I, I'm fortunate enough, I coach our young pro squad and our uh, amateur team here in Canada. I work for Sport Canada and Golf Canada. I've been doing that for uh, 12 or 13 years full-time and before that part-time. And then I also am fortunate enough to coach uh, a couple professionals around the world, two in the PGA Tour, one in the European Tour, and some guys in the Corn Ferry Tour, other various uh, development tours uh, around the world. And uh, yeah, basically my wife says I'm only good at one thing and that's coaching. Uh, so it's probably quite accurate. <laughs> Excellent. So is all your coaching now pretty much with elite players then? You know, I do specialize in high performance. So either, you know, really high performance junior players who want to be college players or possibly professionals, college players who want to be professionals on the PGA Tour, uh, and then, you know, mini tour professional players who want to be in the PGA Tour. You know, I, I coach the odd uh, lesson with Mr. and Mrs. Haberkamp, but almost never. I'm just so busy right now uh, kind of doing what I do. And I'm really, uh, I look at myself as the last 5 or 10% uh, specialist. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think kind of what's really interesting about that is you're not dealing, you're dealing with a tiny percent of the golfing world then. Like most golf coaches are really spending all of their time with the opposite. They're trying to help the the common player. A question that I had for you based on, kind of, I, I knew this beforehand, was you're spending a lot of your time trying to develop elite players and, and really you're spending time with players who are on the tour or trying to get to the tour too. Mm-hmm. Has how you are trying to prepare players for tour golf changed? We keep hearing that, you know, golf is evolving, golf is changing. Have you sort of looked at the skill set that's needed to maybe be successful on the main tours and thought, maybe I need to, to help these players in slightly different elements of their game? Yeah, I have done that. And, and uh, I, I love using stats. I've been a bit of a stat junkie uh, for years and years, even before it was kind of cool. So uh, I've been aware of uh, how you know, what the best players in the world are doing and how they're doing it and how that's evolved over time. At one time, you could be a straight driver that was medium or short length and really be even the best player in the game, like a Luke Donald as, as an example. But nowadays, it's those guys are getting weeded out a little bit. That doesn't mean they're not going to make a good career and make some money and have some wins, but they're really only competitive on about 30% of the courses on tour. And so, uh, you know, I've changed uh, how I coach a little bit to – to at least make our players aware, hey, if you want to make it out there, you're going to have to be long or you're going to have to be extremely straight and at least average length. Uh, and, and everybody has a different, you know, those four areas, strokes, game, approach, off the tee, around the green and putting. Everybody has a different uh, way of 
maximizing their potential. You know, uh, guys, guys who putt really, really well and have a tendency to putt really, really well. Well, that's because they're gaining a lot on the putting green. That's a good thing. You know, let's keep that strong and then try and peck away at some of those other areas. Don't let that get weak. And so certainly it's a long answer to, to your question, but I, I certainly have uh, looked at, uh, and everyone has their own recipe too, Mike. That's, that's really what I think a coach's job is to find out what recipe that individual has and help them, you know, enhance that, uh, that recipe. Yeah, that's fantastic. Have you noticed that maybe that change has been difficult for players who are, say, maybe already quite advanced in their careers? Like, it's one thing telling this information, you know, maybe to, let's say, a 16-year-old or a 12-year-old who, you know, decides they want to be really good at golf. But if you're maybe dealing with, you know, a 24 or 5-year-old who's kind of gone through college, their, their golf swing is already, you know, really in their DNA, and you're kind of saying, well, I know you're really good, but if you want to get to the levels you're talking about, there's probably some significant change here needs to happen. Is that something you've experienced? Yeah, I have. And, uh, you know, you're right. It's a lot easier when you're, uh, you're working with a 16 to 20 year old, uh, even, even younger or, or around that age. But when you have a, let's say a, a PGA tour veteran who's 38 or 40 years old, and they've had a good career as a journeyman out there, you know, 10 years, uh, and they found a way to, to carve out a living. Can you imagine being in the PGA Tour for 10 years? You've had a great career, but uh, it's going away because the game's changing. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's people. Uh, that's why I admire some players. And, and one of the players, I don't coach this this gentleman, but Brian Gay. I, I'm really impressed with Brian Gay. Like he's he's gotten so much longer in the last couple of years and is such an effective PGA Tour player. Uh you know, he's always been a great wedge player and putter, but now he's he works so hard to get stronger and longer. And I have the most utmost respect for some of those guys who are kind of reinventing themselves a bit. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. Like that's kind of some of the players that I've had get in contact with me too are sort of in that mold. It's like if I want and they've been really good players and they're sort of saying like you mentioned, I can compete on certain courses each year, but there's a lot of courses where if I want to compete, everything has to go perfectly. Yeah. Like I have to do everything perfect. And that's just so unlikely, you know, because yeah. they're, they're giving up so much. Yeah. Uh, something I'd like to maybe move into now after getting that little bit of info about maybe how your coaching has, has changed because golf has evolved. Technology is also rapidly changing. Mm. Have you embraced certain elements of technology to try and assist you in, in maybe this slight different in coaching approach? Yeah, I've always been uh, a bit of an early adopter or adapter in some of those things. Uh, you know, as an example, I, I, I'm involved with Foresight. Uh, I've got a Foresight quad. Uh, I've got a TrackMan. I've got multiple flight scopes. Uh, so I've got a lot of radar and, and ball information. Uh, you know, early adapter on the body track, how people are using the ground during the golf swing to, to maximize how far they can hit or be efficient. Um, you know, 3D, big fan of KVEST and I've used the AMM system uh, with my players as well. You know, even, you know, t- from a technology standpoint, communicating via having uh, something like Coach Now or some of those apps to, to have just a nice long history of what we've been doing over the years and, and communication that way. So, yeah, I would say I've really embraced technology, but I will say this. Uh, I, I'm uh, in the technology arms race. I'm also in the information arms race where I'm trying to gain more as a coach to become uh, uh, more valuable to the players that I coach. But I still believe the most important thing about coaching golf at the highest level is a personal relationship with another individual. And I think that supersedes all the technology, all the the science, all that other stuff. I think it's important. Don't get me wrong, but I think it's really uh, coaching is a, is a personal relationship uh, with another individual. And uh, to me, you'll hear my you know any, anyone has a, a, a does a pod with me or reads anything about me. I live I've lived my life by this one quote, Mike: that uh, people don't care what you know until they care that you uh, sorry people yeah people don't know what you know until they know that you care and to me that's the most important thing if they know that you care then you have a uh, an opportunity to work with them and have an impact yeah no that's that's really interesting and it kind of touches on something that you told me before too and you said that you try not to coach too many players or have too many players on your roster at one time because you try and spend so much time with them and just looking kind of from the outside, just from observation, 
it strikes me that a lot of elite players, they seem to have, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, I'm sure there's lots of players who are making improvements as a result, but we see with golfers that their coaching is getting more and more specialized. So there's a putting coach, there's a short game coach, there's yeah. a swing coach, there's a golf psychologist, there's a trainer, there's a physio. Yeah. So they're then getting information from lots of different people. Often they're not always on the same page because yeah. when you introduce that many people, I don't care how good people say their communication is, there's going to be breakdowns there. I know that myself just from working with players and, and talking to coaches and so that everybody's busy, you know, there's, that's just not going to happen. So can you maybe talk on why you think, um, sorry, no. So why you think that maybe having more of like the relationship style coaching with somebody is just as important at that level, as opposed to having all the different technical aspects kind of farmed out to who might be the best at that particular, you know, skill. Yeah, that's, that's good. I, I personally with my players, I do everything. I coach short game. I coach putting. I coach long game. Uh, I don't, I don't get in the gym and work out with my guys. I've had people like yourself. I've used in the, used in the past for those and, and who I think are very competent in that area. I have a very strong air, uh, ability in sports psychology and I use the odd expert there. Uh, but I leave in, I kind of believe in keeping the the uh, team small and tight as opposed to loose and big. Uh, and I get concerned about too many voices for the player because I think if they get too many voices for the player, it can get the like the message can get very confusing, and it can get diluted, and the top priorities can get lost. You know, and uh, so with my guys, I just had a lot of success success, you know, uh, keeping the group small and tight and inviting some experts in, but, you know, for myself being the captain of the ship or, or as an example, the players, the captain of the ship, but, you know, I'm kind of delivering the message for our athletes. And, uh, yeah, I just think it's, if you get too big or too many people on there, it can really, it can really be, uh, it can affect the player in a negative fashion. And, you know, back to your point, I, I believe in spending a lot of time with the athletes I coach in the tour, and I've turned down players because of that. I, I really believe there's an investment in time and a commitment between a player and an athlete. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not really the right coach for somebody who's uh, looking for the secret sauce of the day or the magic pixie dust that they can sprinkle at the top of their head, and all of a sudden they're a top 30 player in the world like Corey Connors. Well, no, that's been earned over a long period of time. And that's, I don't have that. If I had that pixie dust, I'd be sprinkling it on top of my head, not theirs. And, uh, and, uh, but I do know I I've got, I'm, I'm good at working plans, long-term plans. Uh, I'm good at helping players uh, develop the long-term uh, habits and routines that are going to be successful over time. And so, I mean, I guess that's an area that I'm a little bit strong at. And um, I don't feel like as a, a PGA Tour coach that I can coach really more than two or three or possibly four players. Really happy with the two I have. And I think I'm not sure I could do a great job with, with much more. Based on what you're what it sounds like you're trying to do with your players then, Derek, it sounds to me like that you need to do almost say a lot of education and upskilling yourself in things that aren't really related to say the golf, the ball flight laws mm. or, you know, yeah. equipment, it's stuff outside of like the classic golf instruction mold because you're not just on the range saying, well, that faded five yards, right. Because you know, your face was open yeah. to your path, blah, blah, blah. It, it, you really must be like digging into some other resources. Is there any, kind of things that you have been digging into that you can share that aren't, you know, maybe what some people would think of when they see golf instructors. Yeah. Well, first of all, if my guys don't know why, you know, the ball went five or 10 feet to the right from, with the face being slightly open to the path. And I haven't done a very good job of educating them uh, on that. And uh, you know, that's really important. That's a lot, a huge portion of what I do, but I've spent, I've always been a guy who spent a lot of time reading books. You know, I'm reading a book right now called chatter uh, and just talking about the voice in your head and how to use that effectively. Uh, I, uh, you know, I've been a guy just tried to do different things to learn. Uh, I've taken courses uh, with other Olympic coaches and tried to learn from other sports, try to steal the good things from other sports that I can help my golf athletes get a bit of a leg up. Uh, and so uh, <clears throat> I think that 
the golf, the golf part's a passion of mine. Again, like I said, I'm in the arms race on, on technology and knowledge and golf as much as anybody. But I'm also trying to steal from other sports and see what we can learn to get a bit of a leg up on and a bit of a leg, uh, an advantage. Uh, and I sometimes think of golf with the blinders on and all we talk about is, you know, the one or two things. Risk like, flexion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> getting a little more flexion in the top of the swing or a little more extension to the top of the swing so we can hit it further. And those are important, but they're, there's other variables i think that, that can make a big difference as well yeah something that i talked to a really uh, successful practitioner in another sport back in ireland about was and he he was actually asking me about it he said that when you look at uh say professional sports franchises if you consider he was talking about kind of rugby because that's the kind of main professional sport in ireland and he was sort of trying to draw a parallel to golf and he was saying that when you go to professional franchises in other sports, they always have somebody with a title similar to performance director or something to that effect. And he was kind of asking, like, in pro golf, there doesn't really seem to be a set almost hierarchy for a golfer in terms of some of them are doing their own thing. They might not have a coach. They might see a coach every so often. They're basically just, you know, doing it by feel, relying on their yeah. talent or whatever. Other, co- other players, you know, might be very structured in terms of they're with their coach every day. And something that he was kind of saying is that maybe there's a place in golf for players having almost like one manager. I don't mean like an agent. I mean a manager of their actual game who's overseeing almost the decision making in terms of, look, this is really where we're struggling. This is what we need to improve on or this is how I think your timetable should be for this week, rather than maybe the player doing it emotionally based on, you know, they missed a couple of putts, you know, during the round. So now that week putting is their focus. And the next week, you know, it's driving. And he was just sort of saying from what he can see from the outside, and I thought you'd be a good guy to ask, is that maybe even the best players in the world could make slightly more progress if there was slightly more structure in terms of plans being really regimented mm. and being really long-term, obviously they need some flexibility, but maybe there's a little bit too much sort of on the fly in terms of reacting to scenarios rather than having like a plan that they're really, you know, believing in. Does that make sense to you or do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it does make sense to me. And I, that, you know, that's really, uh, I think that's what the top coaches are doing Mike, but I don't think it's something that you're that all the coaches are doing. In, yeah, in and what I should have actually said too is that's kind of what it sounds to me like you're almost doing with your players because I, you only have one or two and you're spending all day with them when you're there. For sure, like when when I'm at a tournament, uh, my players, if I have two guys there, they're getting six hours with me in the day, and then other players getting six hours a day. Where you know some some instructors are spending thirty minutes with their player uh, that day. Uh, but I would say you're, that, that's a really good point because players tend to, oh, I had a, they get off the golf course this morning and they look at their strokes gain and say, I had a bad putting day. I'm going to go putt. And yes, they probably did have a bad putting day. They're pretty smart people, but uh, they may be one of the best putters in the world who just had a bad putting day. And their top priority at the beginning of the year was to improve their greens and regulation number. And so, yes, you're going to do some putting in your post-round practice, your maintenance work. But then part of that maintenance work, you better be doing some iron plate work because that's going to help us move from where you are to where you want to go. And I think, you know, taking some of that emotion out and having a plan and working your plan, I, I just can't tell you how many times I say that to our guys is, listen, you know, we've got a plan. We're going to, we're going to be the best at working in that plan. It doesn't mean we're not going to, you know, 80% or 90% of that plan is going to be very solid. And we might have some wiggle room in 10% of that plan, but most of it we've established over the course of, you know, one year or three years of a plan, just like you do with an Olympic athlete. And you're going to work that plan uh, to a T and, and get better and better. And I think that's, it's a smart way of looking at it. I w- I, that's how I look at it is, you know, there's a team, the player, the player's wife, the caddy, possibly a physio or strength and conditioning coach who are part of the team, uh, in some cases, the agent. And then, you know, all those all those people are working together for the best interests of the player. And in many cases, uh, you know, I like to be the, you know, the deliverer of the message to the to the athlete. Obviously, there's things that are outside my realm of capabilities or my scope. But for the most part, if it's golf related, you know, I like to be able to deliver that message to the player. 
Yeah, no, that's that's really good stuff. Do you think that there's going to be maybe a shift in the types of education that golf coaches seek out as time goes on mm. based on, because what it sort of strikes me as at the moment is that like a, a PGA professional is educated and prepared for a lot of things that don't really have much to do with elite performance. Like it's just not really their job. I'm not saying that they can't coach elite players, but they cover so many other things. They don't have time to study all these other elements. Can you see like that, uh, people who maybe set out at a younger age because golf coaching is such a lucrative, you know, maybe career now that there'll be, there'll be coaches who are much more looking into things like psychology, things like physical training, maybe things like that golfers or golf coaches weren't really looking at in terms of these are performance elements that I need to be an expert in if I want to be really good with players. They better be. Uh, and I know the PGA of Canada has a coaching stream now, they've actually got, you know, a stream for coaching, a stream for instructors. They got a stream for people who want to be club professionals or, or, or GMs. And I know other PJs are doing that as well because you're, you're bang on. I mean, you've got to know as a coach, you've got to know a lot uh, about a bunch of different things, not just only uh, error detection and correction in the golf swing, which is also very important. That's a piece of being a coach. Uh but you also need to know a game plan and course management. You need to be able to talk uh, intelligently about fitness and strength and conditioning and uh, how the body moves and works. Uh, and, but then you have to be able to drill down and communicate that to the student who may not want to know about flexion or extension. They just might, yeah. they might want to just call that a bowed wrist or a cupped wrist. That's what they've been calling it for 20 years. So, uh, but I think you're on a, on a right point. I mean, coaches, they really do have to. And some of the, like, I've, I've seen some of the other PGA Tour coaches. I've got the most respect for some of my colleagues out there because they've just done great work. And I see them doing similar things as well. They're getting educated and, and uh, by other disciplines and learning and stealing from other sports. And I think, hey, that guy's on the ball. I really like what they're doing. And, and I try and, you know, I try and copy and, and get a little better myself. Yeah, something like, obviously, I'm a strength and conditioning coach. And in probably the last, I don't know, say maybe two or three years, like more of my study has definitely been on the golf swing than it has been on strength and conditioning. Because as I specialized in golf, it was a case of, okay, I've got a pretty good background in strength and conditioning. Obviously, I, I want to get better. But like if I'm going to be working with all these golfers and talking to all these golf coaches, like I need to have way better understanding of kind of what they're talking about and what I can try and basically uh, enhance. And as I've been sort of around the, the game at a higher level a bit more, one of the things that I've been thinking about, I don't know if it will happen or if it's a good idea or not, but when I see how golf coaching at the highest level has become separated and specialized in a lot of elements, like we were saying, you know, psychology, swing, short, like wedge play, putting, what kind of strikes me as maybe making sense for, you know, younger coaches who have decided they, they want to be, you know, the best coach they can be. I can see the strength and conditioning coach and the swing coach potentially being the same person in years to come, because I think the, the anatomy and physiology and what you're trying to enhance and the relationship that has with the swing, there's way more parallels there than there is between the full swing and chipping and putting. Mm -hmm. And I think kind of the main hurdle might be the fact that, nobody's ever really done that before but yeah sorry go go ahead well i think uh good coaches have got highly educated in strength and conditioning and how the body works and moves so they can come become a better coach not so they can get in the gym and train the athlete but so they can talk to the trainer or possibly do both you know i've taken i've taken courses uh, on that was part of the education of this uh, NCI program, National, National Coaching Institute, that at one time you had to have this National Coaching Institute certificate in Canada to coach golf, to coach any sport in the Olympics. And it had all these different disciplines I was taking, uh, sports psychology and, and strength and conditioning and, uh, you know, some info on physiotherapy and yearly planning and uh, multi-year planning and uh, more. And, but I think that, I think that's, and you make a good point. You could see, you will see a great trainer who becomes a great coach who knows a lot about the body because, you know, trying to also trying to change golf swing technique 
on the range only. Sometimes that, I can't, t- I can't tell you how many times I recommended to a player, Hey, we're going to work on this in the range. You're going to work in this at home and you're going to work at this in the gym. We're going to do all three of those. If we're going to yeah. try, if we're going to try and make this change, you know, f- fairly quickly and efficiently, uh, it's going to have to have all three. You're not just going to be able to come to the driving range and work on this. We're going to have to do a couple things in the gym. I want to talk to your trainer about doing this and this and this. And the trainer will give me some feedback and say, "Hey, Derek, I like those two, but this might be another idea that might help get this accomplished." And then also at home in front of the mirror, possibly doing some, doing some stuff. So, yeah, I think you're on the right you're on the right path there, Mike. But you've yeah, got to, you've got to be able to play, or like you have to. I think it's nice to have been to be able to play at a nice level, so they have respect for you. I think that is kind of important. If you, you know, I played the the Canadian Tour a hundred years ago. I, you know, I've won twenty tournaments in Manitoba. Doesn't mean I'm a good player small province, but they've competed a little bit. And I know what it's like to get nervous and, and choke. And I also know what it's like to get nervous and win. Uh, even though now I, I, I don't get to play that much because I'm coaching all the time. No one pays me for playing. They pay me to coach. Yeah, yeah. But I think you need to have a respect to the athlete as well. And so I think if you, you, you need to be able, you need to be competent in the game. Yeah, that's interesting. That's maybe something I hadn't considered that players might always maybe be looking for a coach who has experience in the playing realm. which would make it then very difficult for someone who, you know, decides to specialize in coaching, you know, maybe, you know, after the high school level, basically. It's interesting you touched on the Olympic sports. Like, that's where I do most of my research because the education in golf, like, not that it's not good, but it's it's quite early in its – in in terms of strength and conditioning like there's not that much out there it's in its infancy yeah. but if we look at if we look at olympic sports the ones that are basically measured by time or distance so if you think of like track and field um in those sports like the sprint coach and your strength and conditioning coach are the same coach your javelin coach and your strength and conditioning coach are the same coach and now in golf i completely understand that there's huge variables in terms of the putting the wedge play but then when i'm looking at full swing mm. and strength and conditioning coach i'm like that's not that different to teaching a hurdler yeah. or teaching a javelin player or, or a javelin thrower or something like that you know um they're more similar aren't they yeah exactly so that's just something that i've kind of been looking at in terms of and now i think the person obviously needs to make sure that they're they're good enough at both of them because i think a lot of strength and conditioning coaches might underestimate golf swing in terms of how complex it actually is and understanding the ball flight laws and stuff like that but it's just something i'll be interested to see in time if you know, elite coaches mm-hmm. rather than them saying, I'm going to get you to work with this trainer. They're like, no, I'm coaching you. I'm your coach. I'm going to be with you. Like you were saying all yeah. day, I'm going to be looking after your gym routines. I'm going to be looking after your swing. I'm going to be looking at basically like a coach who is everything for one player, but they've almost learned what they need to know to be the go-to guy for an elite player. If that makes sense. Yeah. One thing though, I think that just occurred to me as you're speaking, Mike, that because clearly this makes good sense is the, the golf swing though. The only time we use kind of a maximum golf swing is off the tee about, about nine times around Mm -hmm. Uh, the rest of the shots say, there's 35 full shots uh, around uh, are not maximum 100% or 98 or 97, yeah. 99% swings. A lot of those swings are 80 to 85 or 75. Yeah. And, and I'd be, uh, you'd be amazed at how often we work on, you know, just an eight iron with Corey, you know, adding, adding five yards or taking five or six yeah. yards off. So uh, it's, it, there's a lot of feel, uh, a lot of touch, uh, a lot of athleticism, a lot of creativity that's involved. Uh, whereas in sprinting, we're just trying to go as fast as we possibly can. Absolutely. In the javelin, we're just trying to throw that baby as far as we can. But yeah. in golf, we're only really trying to do that about eight shots a day. Yeah, maybe a couple of second shots on par five. Correct. Maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Cool. No, that's interesting. It's definitely something that will be – I'm curious to see because I think – like. One of the things that I think has changed golf the most is Mark Brody's analytics strokes game. Great, but like as players have gotten and coaches have gotten even maybe more important coaches have gotten more awareness of kind of like how valuable distance can be. And definitely like, I think there's no doubt that coaches have spent more time researching like mechanics and physics that sure. lead to more distance. For sure. It's just natural that they're going to start going, hold on a second. Like, 
why don't I just also learn how to train the athlete? Yeah. Why don't I learn that piece too? And now, you know, you kind of uh, take care of that potential breakdown in communication as one of the spokes on the wheel too, almost, you know, but of course I appreciate there's, you know, their golf is like five games within a game when you consider all the other things like yeah. your kind of strength and power and distance is, is just one of the elements. So yeah. yeah, that's kind of where my thinking is at the moment. It's like, you're right. I think you're right. Or there's certainly a correlation or there's going to be more and more of that happening for sure. Um, switching gears a little bit, Derek, um, to something a, a little bit different. You have a book, Sports Site for Winning Golf, as we touched on. This suggests you have a keen interest in things other than physical skills. Mm. Can you tell us how the book came about and maybe the, the general gist of it? Yeah, no, I just, uh, first of all, I've always had a passion for sports psychology, being a player who wanted to compete and get better. You know, I started as a young man with a very bad temper who had a lot of broken clubs and a lot of, uh, you know, rounds where, you know, I left the wheels and axle out there uh, after maybe getting a little too angry. And so I, as a young man, started to read a lot and research a lot on that because I wanted to become a better player. Uh, and I wrote uh, a first book I ever wrote with, was with Dr. Gary Martin back in, in maybe 25 years ago or more called New Mental Skills for Better Golf, Test Your Self-Talk. And then a a few years later, we wrote a book called uh, Play Golf in the Zone. And then so it it had been 15 or 18 years, even though I had read a million books, I'd spent and been to, you know, probably 20 uh, PGA Tour events, every major, every world golf championships uh, over the past past bunch of years. I go to uh, many, many corn ferry tour events. I'd learned so much more in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, And I have always believed that you have to be coaching physical skills and mental skills at the same time. I've never felt like those are in a vacuum or an isolation separate from each other. I've always felt like you needed to coach both physical and mental skills at the same time. So uh, anyway, uh, I, I was going to do the book by myself and Gary, Gary's, uh, the, who I, is my co-author, uh, he's retired from the University of Manitoba, but his behavior modification book textbook was the most widely sold behavior modification textbook in the world. So what's that called, Derek? Uh, I know people are going to ask me. Yeah, I don't actually, I should know that because it's not golf. It's, it's not overly, but, but uh, doc, you can check out Dr. Gary Martin and, and find uh, some of his. I'll put it below the the notes on this podcast. Awesome. When it's released. Awesome. I look it up and. So I asked right Gary, Hey, I'd like to, I'd like to re, you know, relook at some of the stuff we talked about. And that's how this happened. It's been really a two year, uh, uh, work in progress to, to really share some of the thoughts that I learned while I'm coaching high level players over the last 10 or 15 years. And, uh, it's been a lot of fun and no one writes a book to make money. Uh, probably, probably cost me more money than, than I'm going to make off it, but I've really enjoyed it. And I think it's a good challenge to push yourself. And I think, uh, some really good, simple step-by-step step, uh, areas to help you with your mental game, uh, and, and working a plan, as I said, a million times in this podcast. So I think people really enjoy it and I, and I hope they do. Yeah. I have one on the way. I'm looking forward to reading it. So I'll, I'll definitely, uh, share my thoughts online and, Awesome. And hopefully uh, some other people pick it up. Awesome. Would you say that um, in terms of your learning about the maybe the mental aspect of the game, education, formal education, i.e. like reading books, mm. reading studies versus conversations with players who have been in the heat of the moment and maybe struggling with very low lows and the elation of you know getting tour cards and getting wins – can you maybe touch on where you think you might have learned more? Well, I think there's nothing more valuable than your own personal experiences. So to me, and that's why I love to see you practicing and working on your game uh, and sharing with your followers, Mike, I, I, I really admire that. There's nothing more valuable than your own personal experiences. I tell that to my players probably every single week and they get a little sick of it. So uh, having a, having a little uh, thing that you, you know, uh, I call it, uh, it's a notebook. It's a, it's a player's journal that you're, that you're tracking. Hey, this is what I do when I'm playing my best golf. Hey, when I, when I'm making my most putts, this is what I'm doing. Oh, geez, around the greens, I've got this feel or this thought that's really allowing me to hit perfect pitch shots or, you know, those are things that you just can't replace. You know, I can tell you uh, how smart I am and I'm going to share, I'm going to shower my brilliance on you every single time I see you, but something that you, that you know works for you is going to be really valuable. It's called a pillar for you. And so, uh, 
I think that probably your own personal experiences are most important, but I would say all of those, you know, reading, studying, learning both on your own and then sharing with other, uh, other coaches, high level uh, people like you, I've learned a ton from you. I, you've got Scott, like your, your uh, social media is unreal. Uh, I'm constantly stealing and, and retweeting your stuff. Cause I believe it's great. Uh, even before I knew who you were. Uh, and so I think, you know, you've got to be, again, you've got to be in the arms race of, of trying to learn more and, and educate yourself. That journal you touched on is something that I think is fascinating. And it's one of those things that like we've all been recommended to do countless times. Like we've read it in different books. There's been different coaches tell us you might try it for like a couple of rounds or a yep. couple of practice sessions and then it gets put to bed. But what I've found amazing, like, especially as I've practiced a bit more in like the last year and a half and I've, I've wrote this stuff down sometimes and I've also used um, a few times a voice recording app oh, so yeah. that when I'm driving home from the range rather than writing it, I can just say what I was thinking into the, into the, you know, memory or whatever. And what I find fascinating is that whatever feel I'm writing down or describing that say might've worked great. There's no way a coach is ever going to tell me that. And it might not even make theoretical sense Correct. because it's, a, because it's a feeling. And like, if someone else sees it, they'll be like, that's wrong what you're feeling might actually not be what's happening in reality at all. And I think that's why one of the ways that people can get so much better is li and literally just by cataloging what they feel when they hit a good shot and when they hit a not so good shot. And it might be incorrect, but what I find like even in, you know, the low level of recreational golf I play and like having taken tons of lessons is that there's a huge difference between, a coach giving you great information versus you having a really good understanding of what you need to feel to make something happen. Yeah. This works for me. Part this, of, yeah. Is there anything more valuable than, Hey, this really works for me, even under the gun under the most pressure. Hey, this really works for me. Yeah. If I'm a smart coach, I'm going to say that back to you as a reminder before you get onto the first T. Hey, remember those two or three keys that really, really work for you. You know, and, and uh, you know, I, I'm not one of those guys who criticizes other coaches, but a, a friend of mine, he, he hammers on it. All the instructors that talk about putting a t hitting balls with a towel under the arms and how useless that is. And, uh, and this is a highly respected coach, a, a guy I really respect, but he's always hammering on other coaches or players when he sees them with a towel under their arms. And I'm like, no, no, I mean, sure. I understand that that, you know, we want separation between the body when we're swinging. But I also understand some players have given me feedback when they feel a connection between their arms and their body. Yeah. They play great golf. They've got club face control. They can go at it as hard as they want. So I'm, if that feel works for them, I'm certainly not going to, I'm not going to yeah. ha hammer them on it. So it's such an individual sport. Now, obviously we know that, you know, there's, there's foundations and there's fundamentals, but uh, what works for a person, what works for a person, it, it like it, it just does. And I've, I've seen guys on tour where I see him doing stuff and I'm just thinking to myself, what the heck is that? That is the craziest thing that will not work, but because it, that feel works for them and they have a belief in it, they win or they play great golf. So who, what do I know? You know, just because, yeah. it, <laughs> just like, because we, it's opposite to what I might we, think. We even, we even see like Justin Rose tucking his t-shirt under his, yeah. his left armpit before he hits shots, sure. like to get that feeling. I can remember watching something on the golf channel with David Duval yeah. and he was explaining what he used practice on the range, like what his rehearsals were. Yeah. And he was saying like, I'm fully aware this looks nothing like my swing when it goes <laughs> to full speed. And if I actually did this, it would be terrible. But he was like, this is what I need to feel to counteract my tendency. And like, I think there's, you know, maybe very few amateur players, you know, really dig into either what feels they need to have or maybe having the confidence to be like, this is what I need to do, even though it doesn't make sense, you know, in a, in a theoretical world, basically. Yeah. And you look at, you look at, uh, I mean, David Duvall was the longest straightest driver of the golf ball combined probably ever when he was on. Uh, I love his golf swing. I, I think it's one of the best ever. Uh, but if you think of Tiger in his heyday, when he was feeling those really come over the top swings to really swing mm -hmm. left, well, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't, he, he still would during his swing, uh, 
lay the club down a little bit or come underneath or reroute it, you know, so it could get a little shallower. It was just a little less shallow so he could play great yeah, ball. Yeah. You know, he certainly wasn't coming over the top and hitting a big giant slice, but the, the rehearsal allowed him to play great golf. Who am I to say, hey, Tiger, that's not working for you when it clearly worked quite well for him. Yeah, we see Alex Narn take yeah. to the extreme too with his with his rehearsals. They op- they often get kind of uh, questions from the from the commentators or, or looks from the crowd. For sure. Um, other things, Derek. That so obviously there's a big difference between the physical skills and the potential between tour players and let's say the average club player. We know that the average club player also can't put in the time that the pros put in. But are there ways that pros approach the game that you think amateurs can implement that would help their, their scores? Yeah, I think uh, pros are so most professionals are just so efficient, Uh, you know, and if you look at some of the KG veterans who've been out there for a long time and they've got, you know, wives and families and kids, and so they don't have as much time. So they're really efficient in what they do. They, you know, uh, I I think one of the things that, uh, that good players are doing either pre, let's talk about post round after the round, uh, doing a little, what I call, I always use the term maintenance practice session. Uh, my guys, we talk about maintenance practice. Two, two of my guys just got off the course at the Shriners and just like, hey, going to do a little maintenance session today and, and then get out of there. Good good, good start. Uh, but I would say just having that and having it pre-planned. Okay, you know, after the round, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit of – very likely I'm going to do some short putt maintenance. You know, I might, uh, I might work tidy up on my short game. I might hit a couple tee balls. I'm going to work on a few wedges or a few iron shots. And, you know, you could get all that done possibly in 30 minutes. If you're, if you're on the ball uh, and it's, it's getting good ROI on your, your return on investment of your time. And I think a lot of times people, they don't get a good return on their investment of time. They go to the driving range and they, you know, they, they might hit, you know, 57 irons and yet in a round of golf, they're going to possibly hit three and they might hit, you know, 50 drivers and the driver's an important club, especially if you can hit it far and straight. But, you know, you're going to hit, you know, maximum 14 of those. So make sure you get you, you just take advantage of your time more appropriately and practice, uh, you know, again, being aware of what your needs are. Uh, if you're already driving it really straight, uh, maintaining that is good. But if you can't get it up and down from 15 yards off the green with a straightforward pitch shot, let's let's do a little bit of work there. So, you know, I think it's it's indiv- it's individualized to the player, but. Uh, getting a good return on your uh, investment of time is key. And, and and fitness is a really good one, actually, as well. I, I, I like uh, sometimes, you know, with certain things like it's like super speeds. I'm not sure what you think of those, uh, Mike. But uh, sometimes I see somebody use the super st- speed program and it uh, teases out some bad swing technique just by doing their their protocol. I'm like, holy crow, if I just shut up and let this guy do this protocol, his swing's going to get better and better. And and so there's there's some things like that, I think, that are kind of neat. Yeah, that no, that's fantastic. I'm definitely a fan of super speed and the stack and the and the training tools for sure. Like people who want to get longer, having some element of their practice where it's swinging as fast as they can, and just getting comfortable with it, I think is is really good for them. And there's there's cool science too about being slightly heavier and slightly lighter than what you swing with. Going back to the Olympic sports, this has been effective for as long as they've started testing it. Like if we consider, say, javelin throwers, yeah. They throw their javelin, but they throw javelins that are slightly heavier. They throw javelins that are slightly lighter. Interesting. Shot putters will, you know, put shots that are slightly heavier, slightly lighter. Baseball pitchers will do the same thing with balls, um, because our our body needs a stimulus to adapt to to make progress. And if we only ever use the exact same stimulus and there's no variety, it's not really good for forcing us into change. Whereas if we can get throwing something or hitting something or swinging something that is a little bit lighter. Mm. We get used to doing it at a slightly higher velocity. And now we have something that's slightly heavier. Automatically, it's going to go a little bit slower. Yeah. But when, if it's, when, it's, when we're forced to move more slowly, even though we're trying to move fast, now we produce more force. So it's a little bit almost more of a strength, a strength emphasis. So those two things are, are, are definitely beneficial. But And I've seen a lot. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of improvements in swing technique just by doing that. 
uh, I like to think I'm really brilliant and I'm telling them all these things. And all of a sudden I'm just watching them with, with that. And I'm like, Oh, wow, that's doing everything I want or a lot of things I want just by, by having them become more efficient. And are you generally doing that with a regular golf stance or incorporating like the step drills or the happy Gilmore or both, both, you know, sometimes right. I'll see them, you know, with with the the step drill or the happy Gilmore, or even with just swinging something lighter, trying to hit a swing as fast as they can, or something heavier as fast as they can. I see it clean up some technique things. I'm like, oh wow, that's really uh, that's awesome. Keep doing that. That's going to help. Yes, super speed of talking about that quite a bit too. Like with whatever testing they've done and monitoring, they've mentioned that they see. And I like I don't I don't think it's you know that far a stretch. Like I believe them when they say it, especially when it's you know maybe sort of let's say average players or slightly less skilled players if you can get them one working on actually swinging something very quickly automatically i think they're going to get a little bit more athletic because when the ball is there yeah players get freaked out about contact for like well i i don't want to hit a terrible shot so i'm going to make you know a less aggressive slower swing so that maybe it hits the middle of the face but then their potent like how good their good shots are going to be that ceiling is quite low then because they're, they're never putting a move on it. And for sure. When you get them doing stuff where it's like, look, just walk through and, you know, imagine you're just cutting daisies basically with, with this club, you know, they, they get a bit more rhythmical, I think. Yeah. Um, that actually sets us up perfectly, Derek, for the next section. The the warm-up phase of the podcast is now mm. finished and we can dig into the really important <laughs> stuff. Right on. So... Obviously, I'm obsessed with clubhead speed and distance. It's what I kind of talk about and read about and write about every day. Um, When working with players who lack distance or need to hit it further to compete at the level they desire, what avenues do you go down? Where does your brain go to when you're working with a player and it's like, this guy's good, but he needs five, seven miles per hour or he's going to have a really tough time getting where he wants to? Well, I'll have an honest conversation with the athlete and just tell them, hey, listen, you know, this isn't good enough. Uh, it's not going to help you achieve what you want to achieve. So, um, you know, in some cases I've recommended them to you a, a lot. I've said, Hey, you need to you check out this guy on Instagram and Twitter, and he's got some great stuff and you can, you, can, you should work with him and, and some of the professionals I've done that with, you know, I like, I like uh, super speed and I'm not familiar with the stack. I'm familiar with it, but I don't have a stack yet, but I'm going to get one. I'm interested. Same, same concept. Okay. So like yeah, it's, it's o- overload, yeah. underload swings. Some are slightly heavier, some are slightly lighter. Yeah. Same concept. Yeah. I love the, I love the idea of, you know, explosivity. So working in the gym, if you want to be explosive on the golf course, you have to be explosive in the gym. Uh, and so, uh, that's probably, those are the three. And sometimes there's some technique things too, where, you know, the person possibly could be so steep, they're slowing down because they don't want to, you know, hurt themselves or, or whatever. So I've got, I've got, you know, a bunch of different swing technique drills or thoughts or changes possibly to help somebody hit it further. But if we're maximizing that, I'm going to, I'm going to really tell them to check out fit for golf on Twitter is usually what I do. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's a good, that's a good, that's a good move. But, um, so in the swing technique stuff, when a player is trying to get speed, do you ever go into measurement a bit more closely? Like, do you ever send people to get 3D analysis or force plate analysis? You know, with we've used AMM on 3D, and, and we, I have a K-Vest and use K-Vest. Uh, and so I do do a little bit of that. But, you know, because most of the, you know, the players that I coach uh, are at least in the category of having the ability to have speed. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've used AMM with, with players successfully, uh, but not necessarily for speed, for efficiency. Uh, so, and, and I know there's more to, to know about that, uh, but I haven't done a ton of that, honestly. Yeah. yeah. I'm, like, obviously, there's stuff you can just see, too, when you're yes. watching players. Like, try this, it will you'll go faster. Yeah. And then it's the balance of, well, can you play with it, I think is... Well, and there's the simple things. Like, I'd like the left heel or the lead heel to come off the ground for players that are getting a little bit older or possibly players that, you know, aren't aren't turning their hips enough so they can turn their shoulders enough so they can get, a you know, a long enough backswing. Uh, you know, I, I, obviously a faster backswing. I'm, I'm aware of, all, you know, getting the handle far away from the golf ball. Like, those are some of the things. Those are some of the, you know, the quick and easy ones. Uh and and certainly have done all of those a lot what about equipment one of the players that we were working with we we kind of it was cool like it it was sort of digging into the stuff that i think 
we all sort of enjoy and, and the, the player, you know, then gets to sort of choose what he can use yeah. and not use. But um, one of the things he looked at was longer shafts, yeah. like 47, 48 inch drivers. I've never swung one. I've never even tried it. So can you maybe talk a little bit about, obviously we know they go faster, but your experience of players using these and sort of maybe pros, cons, do you see it becoming more common? I do. And I also feel like the, at the highest level, they might try and reel that back a little bit because, you know, for every inch you have add to a golf club, I believe it's like 1.5 mile an hour versus club hits. Because that right, Mike Russell? So what's interesting on that is I think that is right, but that's on average. Right. And what we need to remember is there's some players who seem to do like a little bit better than this. And there's like, obviously with same thing with averages, with anything, there's some players don't do so well with it. There's some players do great with it. So yeah, I think 1.5 is correct. But like, if you're someone who say can get two, you're adding three inches, like six miles an hour, like six miles an hour for an already elite player. That's enormous. Yeah. And that's so hard to gain with, say, just training or mechanics. Like, that's a big deal. I agree. And six miles an hour is what? It's it's 18 miles an hour. It's or 18 yards, isn't it, roughly? Yeah. That, yeah. It's gigantic. Yeah. So I feel like that usually is someone who's on the edge, too, and they need more speed is hitting the middle of the club face almost every single time. So exploring, yeah, you know, with this one player on the European tour. I, Probably like 15 yards, actually, roughly. I think they get like like two and a half yards per yeah. mile an hour is about the best a tour player gets, but yeah. close, yeah. Yeah, so I think that that's uh, something, we, especially, again, if, if, if you're 112, 113, 114 mile an hour club head speed, and we need to be, you know, more than that, I love adding length to the drivers, again, because I think they could give up some accuracy to gain yards. And there's a fine line. You can't be making one and two shot errors off the tee because then yeah. the benefits of hitting it 15 yards further go away. But if you're still straight and you've gained those 15 yards, it's huge. So that's certainly one thing I explore. I love that, you know, the shafts, the shaft game is really uh, getting interesting. I mean, there's so much, you know, there's claims that, you know, different shaft companies will make that you can get an extra mile an hour, club head speed or, or two or more. Uh, and so, yeah, you've got to, you've got to dig everywhere when you're trying to especially help that person who's, you know, on the cusp of maybe being a world-class player, but a little bit short and ha- is exploring every single Avenue. They're in the gym. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to get more flexible, more explosive, stronger faster and they're using technique and they're also using technology you got to use everything yeah i think what's interesting there and it's it's the same whether you gain speed through definitely changing your technique or are getting stronger and more powerful and maybe equipment like obviously when speed increases balls that are when when how far the ball is traveling increases yeah. the balls all are going, also going further offline yeah. when you hit a bad one and yeah. what the real tough balance for any player basically is and we've kind of talked about this before is that you're making fractional gains with say your 10 you know yards increase on each tee shot you might be looking at i think brody's research for a tour player is that they gain about 0.5 or 0.7 sorry 0.05 or 0.07 strokes uh per per tee shot when if it increases 10 yards so by the end of the round they might have gained let's say three quarters of a stroke or, or a stroke roughly depending on quite how far it was going which sounds great but that that stroke can be easily given up if there's one shot that goes into a hazard yeah. or there's one shot that ends up in a tree that means you have to go sideways yeah and i think that's where players who have developed the capacity to hit it further yeah. it's there's a really tough teething period because it's like this extra distance is great but then if there's one around or three a tournament that go somewhere where it mightn't have, it's like, man, this is this is hard to stick with, you know? Yeah, that's why I'm always a pain in the ass to you on Twitter, Mike. I'm always chirping you about something. I'm hoping, You're right. I, I'm hoping you understand. But because I'm out there in the field and I, you know, I see a guy make two more errors around. Two strokes. It doesn't matter how far you hit it when you're giving two, when you're making two penalty strokes. Yeah, it's tough. Exactly. To, yeah. So it is. It is. It's it's walking that fine line between maximizing how far we hit it 
but realizing there's hazards out there, there's trees out there, there's out of bounds in the water and, and we've got to maximize how far we can hit it. Then we also have to keep it in play so we can take advantage of the distance, distance gains that we're getting. And so uh, uh, it's it, it, golf will always be about blending distance yeah. and accuracy. But right now we swung to the distance and I think it's important because it's a hundred percent warranted you know, like the book, like every shot takes and all the other great, so every shot counts and all the other great, you know, stats guys out there, like, like Lou and like, they've all talked about how important it is to be long, but again, it's still always going to be a bit of a blend. Yeah, absolutely. I think something too, like I, I absolutely agree with the need to keep it in play. Like you, you don't need to be that good at golf to realize how important it is to be able to hit your tee shot at the green, you know, whether it's 15 yards further or it's, or it's, it's not, Something that I've not seen talked about that much in the pro game and maybe even in the amateur game that I think people maybe forget about distance but is but is relevant, especially for pros who are trying to keep cards and make money, is that I think the guys who are really fast and really long, even if they're a little bit more volatile in terms of hitting shots into trouble, I think their ability to get really hot is heightened. Agreed. Because on the the days that they're on, yeah. now it's like, okay, this is this is a different game. They might have more missed cuts. Yeah. They might have more, you know, 76s. Yeah. But when they're on, it's like, okay, this guy could go crazy long. The example I kind of bring up there, and I think he's really good and he's, he's maybe getting better um, at everything else, but is Cameron Champ. Yeah. Like Cameron Champ, he I don't know how many top 10s he has, not many, but he's won three times. <laughs> well, and, it's, and auto, that's, it's an auto win. Like, exactly. And, and it's like he's... He's been a perfect example of someone who is not at all consistent. Yeah. But when he's on, he can win because it's just such a different game for me. I know he's an extreme example. Obviously, you know, most people are going to be on a level slightly below this. He's like 192 mile an hour ball speed. Yeah. But the guys who are like 183 or 186, like those guys on, I think is maybe, you know, especially the way they distribute the money and the points and the exemptions for wins. For sure. It might be it might be better to be that guy yeah. than the guy who is, you Jordan know, one seven one seventy yeah. and is, you know, rarely in trouble, but he has to be like perfect at approach play, chipping, putting. He he can't beat the guy who's like the a good example actually is uh Cantley broke the PGA tour strokes gain putting record. He gained fourteen and a half shots over the field. But he beat Bryson by one. And people were saying, like, it's all about putting. And, of course, the putting was Cantlay's biggest asset that week. But what a lot of people forgot to say was, like, hold on a second. Bryson was, like, middle of the pack in, I think, putting that week. Yeah. And he, and he lost by one. You know what I mean? So it's like, if that type of length is on, it's just so hard to beat. I don't even think his approach play was good. You know, it's just, like, just, it's just a different game. Yeah, there's two other guys that come to mind like that. Uh, J.B. Holmes uh, he almost wins once a year. You know, generally has, you know, and because he's been had a career of maybe 10 plus years. And, uh, you know, he was one of the longest drivers of the game, you know, for, for a lot of those years. And he'd win once a year and miss a bunch of cuts and always, you know, be right up there. And Bubba Watson's another good example of a guy who pounds it. And he's when he's on, he's competing to win. And when he's off, you know, he goes home a little bit earlier. And I think you're right. Uh, it's tough to compete with those guys when they're on. And, and Champ's another. He's a great modern day example because when he when he's on, it's it's pretty scary. Yeah, probably tough for pros to commit to that, though, to be like, I know there's a good chance I'm going to hit a lot of balls in trouble, but I'm really going to go for it. Dylan Fratelli actually seems to yeah. have gone down that path a little bit. Like he gained 15 yards over a season, which is really rare for a tour player. Yeah. And he didn't have a very good season, but that doesn't mean that he might win twice, you know, this year because his potential has changed, I think, basically, you know. Especially when he's on. Yeah, definitely. When yeah. He's on. I see. I remember seeing him out on, like, seeing him a couple of years ago, and then I saw him last year, and he's just taking these giant, whipping, fast swings. I'm like, holy yeah. crap, what's going on there? And then I kind of, I, I don't know if I chatted with you or somebody else, or maybe I read it somewhere, I'm like, oh, he's really going after the distance thing. Yeah. Like, wow, he's really, really committed to it. Other players are committing as well. They're just knowing, hey, 15 yards is – is going to make a big difference over the course of a, of a five-year uh, span as opposed to, you know, five weeks when you might miss five cuts because <laughs> you're losing. Yeah, it's, it's it's hard, though, because I know guys, like, who who go for it, and then there comes the question of, like, okay, I can hit it further, 
but man, I'm not hitting it straight enough yet. And they dial back to kind of like the comfortable speed yeah. where they've been successful before. And it's, it's a really tough balance, even for those guys who are on the top tours in the world. It's like, man, like, yeah, I can hit it further, but it's just, it's just hard. <laughs> like as, as things start going faster, it's, it's so hard to keep it in play. And I think that's why Bryson's, you know, change has been so amazing. Like he's, it's been unreal how well he's kept it in play with such a big change in speed. And he's probably hitting a few thousand drivers a month more than the average player, but it'll be interesting uh, 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 to see how, how the body uh, lasts long-term. If, if it's going to be able to have a, a 25 year career, uh, you know, obviously clearly he looks strong enough to absorb that speed, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that's uh, going to, yeah, it will be. I also think it will be interesting to see if pro golfers want 25 year careers going forward because they're earning so much money. So early, mm-hmm. they might be like, do I want to, do I want to play until I'm 47 on the PGA mm-hmm. tour? Or will I play until I'm 36 and leave with my 25 million mm-hmm. or whatever they've earned? Yeah. You know? Good point. So I don't know, Derek, I won't keep any more of your time. Uh, thank you very much for the insight. It was really valuable. It's great to dig into the brain of someone who's been dealing with elite players for a long time. Is there somewhere where golfers can go to find out more from you? Uh, probably the best way to find me is on my Twitter, my Instagram. My, my, my two sons will say my Instagram is is the worst Instagram in history because you know I'll go to a couple PGA Tour events and maybe tweet a, or maybe post a couple interesting interesting things, and then you'll, then I'll do nothing for three weeks or a month, and they just they're like that. Masters merchandise. Yeah. <laughs> they're like you're the worst dad. But on, on Twitter, I'm a little more consistent, so I would say at Dingram at D. Ingram Golf on both Instagram and, uh, and Twitter and, uh, Derek Ingram.com, uh, is, is my, uh, website that's still getting updated, but those are my two, probably the best ways to get a hold of me. Perfect. Thank you very much, Derek. And I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on Mike.